Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And what you just heard was a bit of the prelude to Claudio Monteverdi's opera Orfeo. And Orfeo is not just any opera, but is considered the first opera, or rather a musical fable. And fittingly, it is an opera that explores the power of music. So what is this power of music and how has it been employed by various thinkers and artists through the ages? And how can we more deeply and personally connect to artists in general and their work and really bring that and import that into our lives very personally? And I have Angela Voss today. And since this is the Star Love podcast, ultimately, I'm talking about how astrology can be used as a framework in that effort. And Angela holds a PhD and SFHEA, and uh, you can check her out at mythcosmologysacred.com. And Angela has been involved in devising and teaching master's programs in myth cosmology and the sacred in Canterbury, UK for the last 15 years, along with some wonderful colleagues. And she has a passion for Renaissance music and culture, which led her to delve into the magical world of 15th century um, magus Marsilio Ficino, and from there to the went on to the Western esoteric traditions and the power of symbolic of the symbolic to awaken the human soul, which is again what we're talking about. Uh, written extensively on Ficino, astrology, divination, Neoplatonism, and magic, and more recently on transformational learning. And again, we'll get into that how transformational learning can be brought into the academy. And she's always felt a need to be a bridge builder, bringing imagination, creativity, and reflexive writing into academic research, treating the narrow path between outsider and insider. She would call herself a Gnostic researcher in Jeff Cripple's terms, in that she sees no contradiction between spiritual insight and scholarly rigor for both, and they can both inform each other. And the programs uh, she's led have inspired hundred, um, over 100 students, allowing them to bring inner experience and practices of imaginal, spiritual, and sacred work into an academic contest. Uh, excuse me, context, not a contest. Uh, <laughs> and she's also, you know, and I think, you know, a great astrologer and tarot reader in her own right. So uh, good morning from over here, Angela. It's afternoon over there, but how are you doing? Thank you. I'm good, thank you. And it's, it's actually fantastic to be here and talking to you. Yeah, so very happy to have you. So, you know, that was um, a little intro to the opera, although it would have been thought of as differently at the time, Orfeo. But let's talk about you. You know, we're, talk- we're going to be talking about Claudio Monteverdi a little bit. But yeah, y- you had a really interesting early life. Um, you sent me a family photo, which I love. But you had a lot going on in your early life as far as music and spirituality and the arts. So what was going on? In my early life? Um, well, not so much spirituality, but yeah. certainly a lot of music and um, dance. Um, I originally wanted to be a ballet dancer for, for many years, and I played the violin and piano. So I was surrounded by music in my early life. Um, but I didn't really discover a more kind of spiritual power of music, I guess you might say, until I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came through discovering Renaissance music. So I had listened to a lot of classical music. My mother would play me a lot of classical music and I danced to Tchaikovsky and mm. um, I listened to Beethoven and Mozart and Bach and, and all the classics. Um, 
But it was only really when I was about 15 or 16 that I discovered the power of 16th and 17th century music, which mm-hmm. for me opened up a door. It was a, like an awakening experience, I guess. Um, and that started me on the, on the whole path of delving into the Renaissance as a period and um, the art, the music, and then eventually the philosophy. Wonderful. Maybe I got that wrong, but I, I was looking through some of your portfolio and I, you had you were do painting a little bit and some of the painting did take on a devotional quality or I remember there was one painting uh correct or, or did I get that wrong sorry uh no well yes um yes I was painting a lot of uh of of I guess you'd call it sort of spiritual themes when I was quite young yes. mm-hmm. and I don't quite know where that came from because my parents <laughs> were completely not interested in in mm-hmm. anything sort of spiritual at all not conventional religion or anything um yes you're right i mean i did i did actually find myself quite mystical as a child i guess mm-hmm. um not so much through music at that point but just through a kind of intuition of something so i was always drawing and painting angels and um i had a I had, yes, there was a friend of my father's who was very interested in kind of different states of consciousness and um, the sort of mystical scientist kind of um, mm-hmm. connection. And I would talk to him a lot and be absolutely fascinated. Um, so I suppose that interest had always been there for quite a long time. Um, but it was only, yes, as I said, it was kind of Renaissance music only began to open that out for me a bit later on. And I, it's a very interesting question, isn't it? You know, where do these things come from? Because my family didn't encourage that sort of feeling or that um, uh, any kind of idea that there was a dimension beyond the material at all. And none of, none of the rest of my family do either. Um, so I felt quite alone in a way. Mm. I was the only one who seemed to sense there was something else which I couldn't put my finger on. Um, where do the, where why is this what what why is it that sometimes we just alone people carrying this kind of knowledge i don't know it's 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 a mystery but yes um i certainly sensed something from a very young age you know it's interesting i think of there is a well-known american artist from down here in louisiana that's where i'm recording this from the american south and in new orleans which is a very interesting divinatory spiritual city but his name's robert sonier and he works with a lot of electrical um, lighting and fluorescent lighting. But he said at one point when he was younger, he went to India and just started sculpting things. And and who knows, he might have seen some of the images, but he was living with some people and he was just started sculpting things. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's that God. Da, da, da. So, so, you know, again, these things can, pop, you know, you never know where they pop out of. And um, you never know. Yeah. This is very true. <laughs> yeah. So, um so when did, okay, so we're going to get more into astrology, but when did astrology come in? Um, well, I think throughout my kind of late teens, early 20s, I became sort of vaguely interested in it and was mm-hmm. reading sun signs. Um, and then when I was about, I think about 24, I thought, oh, I think I'll, I need to do an evening class of something completely different. And and I was looking through a brochure and it was a toss up between astrology and fencing. I, I remember that. <laughs> and um, 
I yeah, I thought, well, um, yeah, I'm not really quite sporty enough for fencing, so I'll try astrology. <laughs> and uh, so I just started evening classes in those days that you could the, the adult education institutes ran evening classes mm-hmm. in astrology. And I was very lucky to have Mike Harding as as my mm-hmm. tutor, who you may have heard of, who's written several books. And yes, I started astrology evening classes and became absolutely hooked. I mean, just it such a revelation. I, I, I expect you, you know, you can remember that moment when you first make your chart and you see yourself reflected back to you and you have this sort of revelatory mm-hmm. moment of, wow, you know, it's okay to be me. And mm-hmm. I realized how you know, in many ways, my parents had tried to make me into somebody I wasn't or wanted me to be somebody I wasn't. And I was recognizing myself for the first time. And that is such a powerful moment when you're learning astrology. And yeah, I never looked back really since then. So I started with that evening class. In those days, you had to draw up charts, you know, using logarithms and maths and and things. Um, which I was so relieved when computers came in to do that. (laughs) Um, Right, yeah. uh, And from there, I went on to do some of the psychological astrology course that Liz Green ran. Um, And then I think my late 20s, probably, I discovered the company of astrologers led Mm -hmm. by um, Jeffrey, Cornelius and Maggie Hyde, and immediately felt that their approach was the approach I wanted to take. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea of astrology as divinatory and the power of the symbol. Um, and I absolutely loved what they did. So I started doing a lot of classes with them mm-hmm. um, and joined the company of astrologers. Um, and then just started doing it, just started practicing mm-hmm. it. Um, and I've been practicing it professionally off and on now for yeah, a good thirty years. Oh wow, wow! So it, it was this around the time, or was it a little bit later? You, you took a couple you know, because again, talking about your arts background, you took a degree in the combined arts and I think languages as well, and then you also went on for a diploma in early music at the Guildhall School. Could you talk a little bit about you know taking those uh, degrees and what that was like, and what was the timing a little bit with how astrology was woven in around that period? Yes. Well, when I was doing my degree, I didn't know much about astrology. Um, I was doing modern languages because I I loved them. And I did a year of classical studies, which um, in which I read uh, Greek literature and translation. Mm. And that was a an awakening moment um, reading Plato's Republic and the myth Mm. of the cave, particularly. That was a very seminal moment in, in a kind of realization that there was a a whole world beyond the cave. Um, Mm -hmm that began to make sense of some of the intuitions I'd had, you know, when I was much younger. So that was really important. Um, But I hadn't really discovered astrology at that stage. I was deeply, Mm. deeply into music and I just felt I wanted to be a professional early musician. And that's why Mm -hmm. I did a postgraduate year at the Guildhall um, studying early music. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there just carried on playing music, particularly viols and baroque violin um it was all around my mid-20s that it all happened so both learning astrology and coming into contact with um anthony Rooley, who led the consort of music 
Hmm. And he asked me to be his um, sort of personal sec- uh, secretary. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me to the letters of Marsilio Ficino, mm. um, this great, you know, Renaissance polymath, philosopher, musician, magician, astrologer, doctor. Um, and it, everything began to come together then. I started learning astrology. I realized that what Ficino was saying about the power of astrology combined with music in a kind of ritual magic um, sort of setting was amazing. You know, it was mm-hmm. absolutely extraordinary. And Anthony Rooley was talking a lot about Renaissance performance practice um, hmm. and putting it into practice with his group, the Consort of Music. Um, so I was learning more, much more about the philosophical background of Renaissance music, together with reading Ficino, realizing that to understand Ficino, I had to go right back into Neoplatonism and the revival mm-hmm. of Platonism in the Renaissance. So, yes, it was in my mid-twenties that all this began to come together, music, astrology, Ficino, um, and began. I began to realise that I had to do something with this, <laughs> with all this. Right, and so you were, you were really a performing musician at this point. I mean, you know, these yes. things were taking off for you. So, you know, it's interesting because I have a classical music background myself. I used to be a trumpet player, um, although never... I, I don't know, you might know one of my professors, Alan Dean, but he had the group yeah. Calliope, and um, he... Um, yeah, he was more in the States, but um, it, it was interesting because I sat on a couple period groups, although I never played period instruments. And, you know, I'm, I'm just fascinated by this because, um, and it just probably was my experience, but never coming into contact with the spiritual philosophical precepts of some of the Renaissance music, like really importing that. So when you were doing that, did you find mm. other people around you who were doing that or were you kind of going well, it alone with yourself? Uh, not really. And I think this is one of the reasons why I felt it, I felt I wanted to do more than just play the music because <laughs> most of my colleagues, you know, they were, I mean, they were lo- lovely people, obviously, and you know, great musicians and loved the music, but weren't really interested in, in going much further into the sort of depths of what, this music was meant to be doing for you, you know, or mm-hmm. the, the transformatory nature of the music, the, the, the soulful nature of it, the spiritual nature of it. Most of them weren't particularly interested at all, um, mm-hmm. which I found very frustrating. So um, I, I definitely wanted to, you know, to get, get behind the music. I wanted to find, find out why it was that it had this such a power for me particularly, um, which I think led me into the academic world. Um, because it led me to study it, to, 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 to find this out. And I, then I think I began to realise that just playing music was not going to be enough for me. I wanted to write, think, teach eventually. And, um, yeah, so I think um, just playing music, even though that's what I started off thinking I wanted to do, it, it, yes, I began to realise by my late twenties that, that that would not be sufficient, and so that's when I started on doing a master's degree and then a, and then a PhD. Mm. Wow, you know it's interesting because you know again 
performing music, especially classical music in a strictly secular framework, you know, it does belie the notion of the roots of Western culture, which, okay, if you had the theater Dionysus and, you know, the Asclepium and all of these areas were more integrated, um, which are the precepts of these works really going back hundreds of years. And it's interesting. I, as I was researching through your work, I have a friend uh, who shall remain nameless, not that she did anything wrong, but she used to play in a major symphony orchestra and then transitioned into arts administration. Um, Actually, she was working for a record label, but she now does marketing for a really, really major orchestra. And she was changing some of the copy around to say, okay, this music is soothing or it has these effects or it's trying, you know, doing something uh, therapeutically. And it was like, <laughs> you know, she got almost got her head chopped off for doing that, um, that, you know, there could be some other purpose, you know, to release the passions or to, um, well, this gets a little bit later, but I think of George Frederick Handel um, with the Ode to St. Cecilia, you know, what passions cannot music raise and quells that there, there is this, mm. you know, Yes, for a lot of, I mean, now that's getting much later than the stuff, well, okay, later from probably our perspective today, but but this idea that, yes, there can be some other purpose, spiritual or medicinal uh, in some way with music. Um, and then, yeah, that, I mean, you know, of course I loved playing music, but yeah, I, I really wonder if I'd had, you know, some of the... Um, Oh gosh, people probably won't remember Grout and Poliska, the, the, but the, some of the, the earlier chapters there, sort of the foundational stuff yeah, is being, yeah, real, yeah. being really key as opposed to being incidental. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And I, I wonder, you know, because there are so many, you know, even as you get on in the, the centuries there, I mean, Mahler's Second Symphony or, you know, I mean, you can just go on and on and on some of the spiritual dimensions of different works. So something that really, you know, I think we all need to think about um, and that there is a historical precedent for it. It's not just <laughs> like making, not just making it up out of the blue. Okay, well, so, I, I, go ahead. Sorry. It's very difficult to write about these things, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I certainly found when I was researching um, both Ficino's astrology and, and music as well, that, you know, music historians and cultural historians, they stick to the facts. That's the point. They have to stick to the facts. They have to mm-hmm. stick to what's been reported, what's historically known. Um, they don't speculate, and they don't to, they don't speak reflexively. You know, they they don't speak from their own experience either. It's a it, the the sort of post enlightenment model of right. historical research. You know, is very much the objective um, the objective fact. So. Um, I came up against that and I knew that I wanted to write differently about music and astrology. And I also came up against the fact that, and this was back in the um, sort of late 80s, that no um, historian had taken Ficino's astrology seriously because mm. he was you know, the eminent philosopher who translated the entire works of Plato and Plotinus. But he did this embarrassing thing called astrology, you know, <laughs> How could intellectuals possibly take seriously the fact that it seemed to work for him? And they were also completely confused by the fact that he'd written a treatise against the judgments of astrologers, and yet he seemed to practice it all the time. And they were so confused that they just didn't they, they just left left it alone and didn't even bother to sort of try and try and understand. So 
it was very much that I felt almost Ficino himself saying to me, look, you've got to try and show how how both music and astrology were fundamental to my Platonism. In other words, how the arts and astrology are actually the our sort of primary way of knowing reality. That's what it boils down to, you know, that there's um there's an instinctive, intuitive intellect, as Plato would call it, that is already part of the divine mind in the platonic sense you know it's already part of universal mind therefore it is our deepest way of understanding ourselves and the world and our our kind of human faculties and disciplines such as you know science and all the other ways we come to know things are, are actually secondary to that deep intuitive intellect and I began to feel that this whole platonic way of understanding the world made such perfect sense and was so deeply misunderstood because enlightenment thinking has turned that way that turned that way of thinking that model has turned it on its head basically it's been a complete inversion of it um so I guess I was sort of setting about to try and restore that balance and of course that's now been confirmed by neuroscientists such as Ian McGilchrist about you know the primacy of the right brain as our as our as our kind of deepest kind of um most authentic way I guess of of knowing the world so that was what I was I was trying to do yeah it's interesting because there's some people might know the famous book the black swan by Nassim Taleb and he talks about the narrative fallacy and one thing in the book he says is well, you can do the narrative fallacy as long as you just know what you're doing. And, you know, it can be quite helpful, those narratives, but they're not true. Almost to, to, to dismiss the the narrative um, that is so critical. So just, you know, you, um, just to, so people can get a feel and actually hear some of this music. This is the invocation to Jupiter. The universe is called Jove, who inwardly nourishes heaven and earth moving seas, the moon's shining orb, the stars and sun. Permeating every limb, he moves the whole mass and mingles with its vast substance. It is thus that the heavenly spheres are set in motion and governed by Jove, the spirit and mind of the whole universe. From him also arise the musical songs of these spheres, which are called the Muses. The divine prophet Orpheus says, Jove is first, Jove is last, Jove is the head, Jove is the center. The universe is born of Jove. Jove is the foundation of the earth and of the star-bearing heaven. Jove appears as man, yet he is the spotless bride. Jove is the breath and form of all things. Jove is the source of the ocean. Jove is the movement of the undying fire. So just to give people an idea, this is, you know, what was going on um, with Ficino. So let's, you know, I can't even believe it. Let's wrap up a little bit on Ficino and then move to Monteverdi. So could you wrap us up a little bit, Ficino? And I, I, it's like, your whole life has been about Ficino in many ways, but, but trying to sort of tie Ficino up a little bit, here's, here's what was happening. And then 
contrast that, then we're moving into multiverity, which is such a different thing. So, you know, okay. some some of the philosophical precepts of what Ficino was doing, how that played into music, and then let's move into multiverity, his spiritual background and what he was trying to do with as I was saying, his opera, just as an example, Orfeo being about the power of music. Yes. Yeah. It's extraordinary that really the connections between those two um, composers, I mean, obviously can't really call Ficino a composer because he improvised mm-hmm. most of his music, but um, um, I, how do I wrap up Ficino? Gosh, well, <laughs> he... Um, oh, wrapping up Pacino. I guess what I mean with I guess what I would have to say is that he, what he brought to the world was um, a a kind of living Platonism. You know, what he what he understood through his astrological music therapy um, was the fact that it was possible to engage with both music and astrology as a as a theurgic symbol. And this is what I think. I'll come to with Monteverdi is doing the same thing. And by a theurgic symbol, you know, I'm referring back to Iamblichus and Neoplatonic rituals of theurgy, where the symbol, whether that is a object like a statue um, or a talisman, or whether it's an invocation, an image of some sort, is like the intermediary between the human senses, like the ears and the eyes, and something deeper, further, what it what it points to, what it embodies, what it represents, such as a statue of a god, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I understand, and Ficino was fascinated by Iamblichus, and he and his whole um, natural magic is really a sort of thinly disguised kind of of theurgy. And I think he fully understood that what he was practicing was a way of. Um, providing a kind of bridge for the human soul to contact its higher self, if you want to put it like that, or contact the divine. I mean, he obviously had to be very careful how he put this because he was also a Christian priest and he was mm-hmm. using pagan rituals, and that's a whole other story. But um, music became this theurgic symbol. It became this intermediary, um, this way of actually allowing people to connect with a whole dimension of experience, which is both in themselves, but often experienced as sort of outside themselves as well as some divine power. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did it through his astrological music and through mm-hmm. the power of words. And this is what I think connects him straight to Monteverdi in the 17th century, is that they were both um, inf- very strongly influenced by Plato, but in different ways. Um, but for both of them, the power of the word in music and the meaning of the word became absolutely primary and that the music was supporting the mm-hmm. meaning. Um, mm-hmm. I'll just read you this little little quotation that, that sure. um, this is from Pacino's Book of Life, which I think is absolutely apt, both for what he and for Monteverdi were, were doing. He says, remember that song is the most powerful imitator of all things. It imitates the intentions and passions of the soul as well as words. It represents also people's physical gestures, motions and actions, as well as their characters, and imitates all these and acts them out so forcibly that it immediately provokes both the singer and the audience to imitate and act out the same things. By the same power, when it imitates the celestials, that's the the heavenly bodies, the planets, Mm -hmm. it also wonderfully arouses our spirit upwards to the celestial influence 
and the celestial influence downwards to our spirit. Now, Ficino is talking about invoking the daimones or the spirits mm-hmm. of the cosmos, but he's also talking about the higher powers, although he's not explicitly saying that in this context. You know, he's talking about the divinities. He's talking about whatever lies beyond. He's talking about that whole level of of, of, of a kind of divine intelligence. And then we come to we sort of leap to Monteverdi. You know, mm-hmm. it was two hundred years later, and he's saying exactly the same thing about the power of words and song, the imitation mm-hmm. of um, emotion, a very powerful emotion to attract that to the singer and to the listener, so that they can also feel that power. Uh, and that is, I think, what connects these two um, radical, you know, figures. And what Monteverdi was doing in in doing in creating this kind of song, which um, in which the words um, were so powerful, he was um, breaking away from the the what had come in, in between the, the two of them, if you like, which was the, the rise of polyphony and polyphonic music, mm-hmm. where the music was more important than the words. You know, the harmonies were much more. Um, sort of evident and moving in a way than the actual individual words. And often in polyphony, you can't even distinguish the words. It's the movement of the harmony that, that moves you. And at the end of the seven, uh, 16th century, in the beginning of the 17th century, this new movement of music came in. It was called the New Music um, in Florence, where they wanted to get back to ancient Greek ideals, just like Virgino had, where they believed that you know it, polyphonic music was not, really doing it because you, you couldn't really hear the words and, and really, really feel the passion of the words. So the solo song came back in and the monody and then which led to opera, the idea being that the operatic song you know, could express emotion so powerfully that it could you know move you very, very deeply. So I think that, that this is what connects these two. You know, it's this this power of words and music and you know, we have to talk a bit about about the the astrology of of Montezuma's yes. chart here because it is so yeah. extraordinary in that respect. Right, um, and it's you, it's interesting too because this is you know an analogous theme, but oftentimes there it, there are always these fights about throughout music history about obscuring words through polyphony or even improvisations like singers getting out of control <laughs> with the, so there is it's i mean aside from all the the wonderful spiritual stuff that we're talking about there there is this concept just generally in music the prosody or the setting of words to music how do you do that do you make the text clear do you you know is is the text actually secondary to the music so that, that's a mm. that's a whole other conversation but you you kind of just made me think of sometimes composers getting mad at opera singers for doing whatever they want and not following the text of the music but but yeah to Monteverdi's chart and just briefly you said that this was kind of an awakening of spiritual eros for you so this is really something mm. very powerful I mean it, it oh, seems yeah. to me something yeah. Could you just briefly talk about that feeling that you were having? Um, yes. Well, I first had it, you know, when I was 16 and I, I discovered Monteverdi's Vespers of 1610. And I would just lie on the sofa for hours and hours and hours with headphones on, just getting completely high on this music. That's when it first started for me. I didn't know why. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that it, it was like a drug almost. It just mm-hmm. was had such a powerful effect. Of course, when I started 
um, sort of studying things in a bit more depth and sort of realizing what kind of techniques he was using, what his ideas were, you know, it, it all began to sort of fall more into place. Um, and when I discovered his astrology, it was that was a kind of a bit of a light bulb moment in, in, in a way, because, you know, the extraordinary thing about astrology, you know, as you know, is that it just has this, it's this metaphoric mirror, you know, it just, it reveals something that that nothing else can on a certain level, but it's not a, an ultimate truth and it's not causal. You know, it's like a kind of it's like reading a life story through a mythic lens, in a sense, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. through which you kind of see through to, to sort of archetypal qualities, um, which gives you a whole new dimension on 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 the person or the event or whatever it is you're looking at. And when I saw, you know, that Monteverdi had his Mercury-Venus conjunction in Gemini and he was seeking the perfect marriage of words and music, mm. you know, that signature became such a powerful one, which I wrote a long essay on in the end. But, um, no, I mean, no wonder, you know, of his genius with, with, with that combination. And it was also squaring Pluto and opposing Uranus. Mm. And, you know, opposing Uranus... It's this new music mm -hmm. that he was mm -hmm. cha you know, passionately championing um, mm -hmm. and squaring Pluto, you know, in the eighth house, um, mm. this deep, deep piety that, uh, and sort of, he was really working with mis with the mysteries, you know, in his religious music, I think. And, um, and yeah. Yeah. And you, you, one of the, this is something you wrote about, um, I'm not sure specifically which part of Monteverdi's music, but the erotic rub of dissonance. So let me play a little bit. This is from, yeah, this is from Orfeo when um, he learns of Eurydice's passing. in college actually writing a whole paper about that his use of dissonance mm, and yeah. just how powerful that is and how my gosh it you know it must have been for people to hear that at the time oh um, absolutely I mean people were shocked at the time yeah. um in fact there was a there was a sort of massive controversy that, that happened um where you know in public between him and a um a very conservative critic called Artusi, who was just completely appalled at the liberties <laughs> to which you know this new music was going, and in terms of the kind of effects that that Monteverdi wanted to achieve, and the dissonances and um, the sort of vocal techniques that he was inventing, um, he was pushing things you know to an extreme that had, had never been seen before, um, and there was quite a lot of opposition. Um, it was a, a real watershed time in terms of of musical composition mm -hmm. and you know and, th and then things never looked back after that you know opera developed out of his his idea of, of monody and this sort of a passionate solo song mm -hmm. um but yes this the, the erotic i mean uh, he does achieve this most extraordinary combination of the spiritual and the erotic and mm -hmm. um i can't think of any later composer that 
does has managed to do that in the same way and i think it's partly because he's he's straddling these two worlds of of renaissance and baroque um mm -hmm. so he's he's still part of this kind of magical mythical world of the renaissance where we're all participating in the sort of erotic life force of nature if you like but he's also in a world of passionate human individualistic mm -hmm. emotion mm -hmm. um and you know the, the longing of the lover and the and the the, the, the longing for the, the individual um beloved and it these two worlds kind of merge in a way and you you kind of feel that even in his madrigals, you know, which aren't overtly spiritual or religious, he he's talking about a spiritual beloved. He's singing about a, a spiritual mm. beloved. Um, it's almost like the power of the music lifts it from the personal to the universal in some way. Mm -hmm. And what the, the, his 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 dis, his use of dissonance and suspension, um, which is where you get a sort of discord suspended over. a over mm -hmm. and over until it eventually resolves into a concord mm -hmm. it kind of produces this sort of oh you know this kind of longing yeah. a kind of angst and kind of desire and then and then you get the resolution and it's a kind of so it's this sort of yeah the desire and the resolution are built up through the music um in, in some of his madrigals it's to, it's to such a, an extraordinary degree that you know you think gosh this is kind of really it just uh, so yeah, just very, very extremely emotional, knife edge type um, music. Yeah, and the thing that I love about Orfeo is, again, as I was mentioning in the opening, it is an opera. Although he, they probably wouldn't have called it an opera, right? I think it was called a favola in music. It was, but they were yeah. whatever. It, it was like a nascent opera, if you will, as we're looking back upon it. But still, this concept of you know, an opera, as we would call it, about the power of music, but then the power of the story itself and the text and the the combining of the two heads of Janus, if you will. So that takes us into, let's talk a little, you had talked a little bit about Monteverdi's chart. So a little bit about who he was, his character, his spiritual background, because I think you were writing he was a devout Catholic, but yet pushing yes. boundaries. So you, t you touched on a little bit of who he was uh, musically and how that's reflected in his chart, but who was he personally and what was his direct uh, religious background? Well, he was um, obviously part of the sort of counter-reformation um, sort of Catholicism, totally devoted to the Virgin Mary, as far as we know. I mean, his Vespers to the Blessed Virgin, obviously an example. Um he, I mean, his character, I mean, he's, he wrote uh, a lot of letters that survive. Um, he had a very sort of fiery, irascible character. Right. He would speak anger very easily. Um, and if, I mean, the chart that I have for him, um, his birth date isn't, it's only confirmed in one source I could find. So it's it's not 100% accurate, but it fits fits him so perfectly that it's, it's the one I use with Aries Midheaven and Leo Rising. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mars on the Midheaven, and he was always getting into fierce arguments with his employers, and apparently he was quite a difficult character. Um, but he also had this very, you know, quite tragic Moon-Saturn conjunction in Virgo. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, perfectionist in him and, and the craftsman in him, 
but uh, also a tremendous tragedy because he he lost both his wife and one of his um his ward his his his, his protege um singer mm. who was going to sing the the main part in his opera Ariana mm. um both died um very soon after each other um so he had immense personal tragedy and I think he was a character of extremes, you know. I think all that Gemini must have made him quite a, quite a, a changeable um, sort of character. And and the Mars on the Midheaven, he was. I mean, he was complaining about the fact he'd never been paid by his employer, mm-hmm. uh, the Duke of Gonzaga. Even on his deathbed, he still hadn't been paid <laughs> for years before, and he was complaining about it. Um, so I think he was yes a character of great extremes. I think the Leo Rising, you know, he was very proud. He was mm-hmm. um, intensely concerned with the individual and the individual's journey. I think mm. like Orfeo was interesting that he wrote Orfeo on his Mars return, you know, and it's very much like a kind of hero's hero's journey in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, and also when he wrote Orfeo, he had progressed v- Venus on his ascendant and. Mm. And and Orfeo is very much also about music as the feminine, um, the return of the feminine, and 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 recapturing the power of of, of, of and the beauty of music. Um, so I think he was he had a lot of inner emotional struggles, but um, just had this incredible genius, which mm-hmm. is signified, I think, by his by his Gemini side. But, yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. With I, I have brought it up before, but the the concept of Janus, the the two headed Roman god, and the the heads look in different directions. But the necessity of having the two heads and then still moving in one direction, and that being so strong with Monteverdi, like oh, all of these different elements jockeying for position within him. Um, you know, I guess perhaps even symbolized just by music, text, how to combine the two um, and then move forward. But just another thing I was thinking about too, looking through your research, that he did ultimately come into more recognition around the time he was 41. And if yes. if one, one uses the Ptolemaic ages of man, 41 is when the Mars phase begins. So that would activate his Mars and his midheaven you know, it would activate Aries. So, um, yes. yeah. 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 Isn't well, it interesting? And then he could, then his forceful quality could in a way maybe express itself um, more harmoniously. <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting. You said about the, about the countries, because I mean, one of the things he actually says when he writes, he's writing about his music is that you know, he's, he's very, very, uh, interested in bringing out contraries in music, you know, and opposites in music. And he says that contraries move our mind, you know, the most powerfully mm. opposites move our mind. So, and in particularly in his eighth book of madrigals, which is called um, Madrigals of Love and War, you know, he's contrasting love and war, Mars and Venus all the time in that book of madrigals. And, and his madrigals of war are called other magicals of love and his magicals of love are called other magicals of war. So there's this mm. kind of contrariness going on all the time. And, the, and they're kind of trying to find a way to bring the opposites together. And mm-hmm. um, which of course is a very sort of Gemini thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's there deeply within his whole ideal of, of what music should be and how it can move us. Yeah. Wonderful. So again, this is all wonderful 
And the next step and the next move we can make is the practical. So how we connect with these artists, we're talking about this. You know, interestingly, I was looking into it. I probably have more natal connections to Monteverdi. I, I couldn't believe it. when I, was, it's, it, I mean, it blew my mind. Just it's probably the most connected to any chart that I've, another person's chart. And I do find a lot of affinity with him as a person. But you also had a really... Um, personal connection to Monteverdi. There was a performance that came on the BBC. I think it was 2014. And uh, then that, co- yes, go ahead. Oh, well, yes, that's just a little anecdote that I, that I wrote about. Yes. That I thought was, um, you know, really, really wonderful example of synchronicity. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So my de- descendant is at 22 degrees Gemini. So my mm-hmm. descendant is, is right on his, his, Mercury Venus conjunction, mm-hmm. which is probably why he means so much to me. Um, and I just there was an episode, yes, back in 2014, where I happened to turn on the radio and and heard a performance of his um, Combattimento di Tancredi e Clarinda, which is like a dramatic setting of um, uh, by Tasso. And I was absolutely spellbound. I hadn't listened to any Monteverdi for some time, and I remember just sitting in the car and just thinking, "Wow." You know, I just got back into Monteverdi. I've got to write about him. I've got to think about him more. This is just, I was just completely transfixed. Um, And when I consulted the ephemeris later, I was astounded to see that during that very week, Mercury, who is obviously like a sort of psychopomp mediating between heaven and earth, um, was moving through exactly the same degrees in Gemini as, as Monteverdi's Mercury and Venus which also happened to be the significant degree of my own chart. So in other words, that was the only couple of days in the whole year that Mercury's position would have been aligned with Monteverdi's Mercury-Venus descendant. And it was that one week that the BBC decided that Monteverdi was composer of the week. So, you know, when that sort of thing happens, you have these sort of spine tingling kind of thinking, well, what what is going on here? You know, what what sort of mysterious mysterious agency is joining me to Monteverdi to the BBC and um and it, it sort of spurred me to to do more much more research on his astrology and to to write quite a long essay you know about the Mercury Venus conjunction so um yes I think when that sort of thing happens you feel this direct connection you know through the ages to to the person it, 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 I have the same connection with Ficino we have we've got a very strong sort of sinistry um and it's almost like you know them in some way very deeply you know through through their art but but there's there's a sort of deep there's a deep knowledge there I feel I feel that I know exactly what he was trying to do and I'm moved in the exactly the way that he wanted people to be moved and people will find this with any artist or musician that they resonate with. And it's an extraordinary feeling. And I, I felt that to write about this, you know, is, is extremely important and to evade it and to just sort of talk about, you know, the musical techniques he uses and mm-hmm. the historical language, which is mo- what most music historians would do is to miss the most essential point which which is that deep emotional connection so i tried in in this particular essay you know i really tried to bring out um the spiritual sense 
that connected me, Simone de Verdi, to his music um, through exploring some of the symbolism that he uses, particularly in the Vespers, um, which I think is the most amazing ritual, uh, sort of mystery ritual that's ever been written, even though it's obviously couched in a kind of Christian context. Um, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the kind of work you were doing. Um, you were the director of the master's program, Cultural Study of Cosmology and Divination um, at Canterbury Christ Church University. So that you were really, you've been trying to help people to get into this kind of divinatory, magical mindset, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah, we have. I mean, both Jeffrey Cornelius and myself um, have been working together on uh, master's programs in Canterbury um, since about 2000, 2004, something like that. First at the University of Kent and then at Christchurch University. Um, and we've been trying to marry, yeah, imagination, intuition and academic rigour. We've been trying to to bring these things together into a transformative learning um, kind of program uh, as an approach um, I think it's been very inspiring I mean the students write fairly conventional essays but they also do creative projects and um, personal journaling and they can write very very autobiographically um, and personally um, and I think it has been a great success I mean it's coming to an end this year um, but we're developing our, a new project now online, which is the Center for Myth, Cosmology and the Sacred. Um, right. And yeah. just go ahead and what's the, how can people get in touch with that um, or connect with that stuff? Yes. So, um, so the website is um, mythcosmologysacred.com. Mm -hmm. um, and it has an archive of some of the MA work, but it's mainly now developing our, we're developing our own, online courses, webinars, lectures, seminars, mm -hmm. podcasts. We've got a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, and it's trying to carry the work further in a way. I think I think one of the reasons, not one of the sort of practical reasons, I mean, that was uh, very bureaucratic in terms of the university, but one of the spiritual reasons, if you like, that um, we had to carry on or end uh, end the work at the university is because it, it needed to be freed it needs to be freed now of that kind of all the time that was spent on on, on the kind of you know protocol and, and restrictions of the academic life mm -hmm. um we're taking up too much time that's one thing and were also you know we, it was a quite a difficult marriage really trying to bring this material into an academic context um, and we did it, and we achieved a huge amount. But it took an awful lot of toll. I mean, it took a big toll on my health. I had to take a whole year out mm. last year because oh, wow. I, I just basically had a, had a kind of mental overload. Mm. Um, and I realised that it needed to now develop in a new way that's more global, that's uh, mm -hmm. reached far more people, and where it can be far more experimental as well. Mm -hmm. um, where we can try out all sorts of new ways of engaging people um, in, in in more experimental kind of activities and reflections and meditations and um, learning with the heart as well as the head. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. And it, it just to briefly go back to your experience with seeing the Monteverdi performance on the BBC. This, this is something that comes up because, you know, a lot of people don't know astrology or, you know, maybe even know how to read a chart or how to see if there are natal connections between oneself and say an artist whom the person loves. But there's this fourfold process as creating perceptual depth, as you call it, and it relates to the hermeneutic cross or, you know, relates to the cadent houses in astrology. So I wonder if we could just briefly do that. Um, And I know it's a complex topic, but so you have the literal, which is, okay, here's some kind of omen. Maybe it's a leaf falling. Um, So that's the first step. And then the second step is how do you interpret that and maybe put it into practice And then the next step is what sacrifice um, might need to be made in order to make that action happen that related back to the literal. And then there's the divinatory mystery at all or what one one might hope for at all through the revelation. Um, I think I did that pretty succinctly, but is there anything? Yeah, I know it's kind of, it's sort of confusing a little bit, but is there anything you'd like to elaborate upon with regard to that and maybe how, we can all engage with that type of thinking and being much more for greater gains. Well, yes. I mean, you've just described, you know, that the, there's a fourfold hermeneutic of the kind of the medieval, early medieval idea of the fourfold hermeneutic um, and also a very neoplatonic idea. Um, I think it is through the power of the symbolic and the metaphoric, you know, which we've lost in our, in our culture and society um and through uh, therefore through the arts which are these most profound symbols you know they're not just there for you know, great art isn't just there for entertainment <laughs> it's there mm-hmm. to actually lead you to a completely different way of knowing you know seeing literally seeing with different different eyes um so once you read something in nature or you know in in art or hear a piece of music that that does have does carry the power of the symbolic then it's almost like you you can open up these eyes that have been shut in a way and start reading it as meaning something else. So the first step would be to read a literal event allegorically, you know, to see, ah, oh, yes, that means such and such. So mm-hmm. you know, it's like what we do with astrology all the time. Ah, oh, you know, you've got Venus in the 10th house. That means your career will be as a beautician or something. I mean, that's a kind of allegory. And then... Once that step is taken, you can then move to, well, what do I do about it? You know, what what action do I take or how do I change my way of thinking or how do I mm-hmm. move with that symbol that it becomes real? So just to go back to the slightly, slightly sort of silly analogy. <laughs> no, it's okay. Somebody might say, well, oh, actually, I've always wanted to be a beautician. You know, I've never dared to do it because my parents wanted me to be a lawyer or something. I'm going to do it. And then they'd be actually acting on on the symbol and, and bringing it into their lives, changing their lives. Um, that's that's the kind of you know just in, that's the way a way astrology might work or divination might work in a practical sense. Mm-hmm. When, when you're when you're talking about a say a piece of very powerful music or a um, a spiritual text, a sacred text, which is designed to lead you to that. Um, point of change in yourself and realization then you're also talking about a change of perception which allows you to realize that there 
other dimensions beyond the literal, beyond the material, beyond what we can sense just through our senses. Um, and that really occurs through kind of ritual practice, I think, and, mm-hmm. and um, great, great sacred music, you know, is designed to lift you to that space where you get a, a sense or a taste or a glimpse of what we come to call divine, whatever that may mean. <clears throat> and once you've had a sense of that, um, that's what's called the anagogic sense or the mystical sense or the final mm-hmm. sense. Um then that can start becoming the sort of primary reality that informs your your life, and you realise that you know the scent, everything you perceive through your senses is actually dependent on that and leading to that in some way. So the whole of nature becomes theophanic, you know, it becomes like revealing this deeper principle. Mm-hmm. And I think astrology and divination has the power to reveal that to people. You know, I think it has the power to reveal that there's some mysterious other ground of being that is is a complete mystery and it is ineffable and it's not part of the language of empirical science and uh, and everyday facts it is something quite different but we've cut ourselves off from it you know the past mm-hmm. at least 400 years or so we, we, we we've severed that connection so it's restoring that connection i think is so important mm-hmm. um and that's where the arts come in, I think. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think we'll end on that note. But do you have any last comments? And just to reiterate where people can find what you're up to and how to connect with websites or YouTube channels. You know, you have a lot of papers published. Yes. So I've got a, most of my papers on my academia.edu page. So you can find them there. And a lot of them are on the uh, <coughs> the um center for myth cosmology and the sacred as well um where there are also various downloadable courses and lectures um or you can email me at imaginalcosmos at gmail.com um and i'd be delighted to to answer any questions or 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 chat or whatever um it's just fantastic to um to to go more global really with, with what we're doing and um and inspire people yes absolutely okay thank you so much angela for coming on and this is dan beck signing off from the star love podcast and remember if you love the stars they'll love you back and on the next episode of the star love podcast we feature hadley fitzgerald we discuss hadley's early desire to become a shakespeare scholar her move to bring astrology into psychotherapy and the exploration of hadley's work which asks the question what does your soul your diamond want of you want with you Thanks for listening, and please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring the Star Love Podcast, email Intermakeup Business Manager James at james at intermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Star Love Podcast, go to intermakeup.net to the Leave a Tip Make a Wish section.